2: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Sarah Tyson, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Colorado, Denver, and I'm co host of the channel along with Carrie Figdor, Robert Talese, and Malcolm Keating. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books, drawing from a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Lindsay Stewart, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at the University of Memphis. Her book, The Politics of Black Joy, Zora Neale Hurston, and neo-abolitionism is just out from Northwestern University Press. What can Southern black joy teach us about agency? What role does refusal have in liberation? What more might there be to root work than resistance? In The Politics of Black Joy, Stewart explores Hurston's contributions to political theory and philosophy of race to develop a politics of joy that owes much to indifference, refusal, and tactical misrecognition contending with white supremacy and countering neo-abolitionist approaches that reduce Southern Black life to tales of tragedy. Stewart suggests how politics of black joy can broaden our imaginations to think emancipation anew. Lindsay Stewart, welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here today. So um, will you start out by telling us a little bit about yourself and about your background as a theorist and how you came to write um, this book on Zora, uh, Zora Neale Hurston's work and, and The Role of Joy.
0: Okay. Um, I guess one way to start would be that I'm from Louisiana, um, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Uh, I think that if anyone <laughs> asks me um, today, you know, where are you from, I'll still say Louisiana, even though now I live in Memphis and I've lived in a couple of places in the United States um, since being raised in Louisiana. And one of the things that always kind of struck out to me uh, being from Louisiana is when I went to school up north um, in Michigan and in Pennsylvania, I noticed there was this mismatch um, between how people talked about Black life in the South and how I actually lived it being from Mm -hmm. the South. And there was this sort of disdain um, and wariness about me wanting to move back to the South. There was this sense that, um, why would I want to do that? It's so horrible down there. There's so much racism. The, the Ku Klux Klan is always out. And that was there. But there didn't seem to be room in those conversations for um, a lot of the resources that I found growing up in the South um, in black communities, and it was almost as if it was looked down upon to say any anything really good about black life in the South. So a lot of this book and my research in general comes out of that mismatch of um, how in the U.S. we tend to talk about. Black life in the South um, and how I lived it and how my mother and grandmother uh, lived it and, and what I witnessed um, in terms of our, our rituals, um, our ways of making meaning and um, the fullness of our lives. Zora Neale Hurston, gave me the language to talk about that mismatch and theorize it. Um, So that's where Zora Neale Hurston comes into this. I hadn't planned on spending so much time on uh, working on Zora Neale Hurston, but once I found her in my third year of graduate school, um, I never quite was able to get rid of her. Mm. And um, she's someone that I wrestle with and admire and, um, She's really pushed me to think about how um, Black life in the South gets portrayed in the US public sphere.
2: Yeah, and this I think is a really nice um, setup for talking about the the actual structure of the book, because before each chapter you write a scene. And I was hoping you could talk in general about what the relationship between those scenes and the chapters what that relationship is.
0: So I was really influenced by a recent book by Imani Perry called Vexy Thing on gender and liberation. And in that book, or it just came out in I think 20, 2018 or 2019 in that book, um, She has a lot of the theoretical work that she's doing in the chapters, but then she also has what she calls interludes um, that talk about, uh, I guess, the application, real life application. So she delves into the history of of witches and how witches relate to the larger arguments she's making about gender liberation um, and what are some of the... Um, hopes and also failures um, of this project of feminism um, throughout the centuries in the the U.S. Um, I loved that setup. And one of the things I loved about that setup and that I tried to emulate in my my own book is that um, it made the book a lot more readable. Um, If you weren't an academic, you could still pick up those interludes and get something very rich out of them. So that was also something that I was aiming towards was I wanted to make it very digestible for people who maybe aren't even in philosophy. Um, another thing that the I was drawn to uh, with the interludes and what I tried to emulate in my own book is that um, I felt like This was one way to prepare the reader for my argument. So give the reader um, a concrete example of what I'm talking about. um, And that prepares them for the sort of move that I'm trying to make in my analysis of of Zora Neale Hurston's essays. Um, I guess maybe a third reason of, of why I went this way is because most of my arguments are about Zora Neale Hurston's essays in the book. Um, To some degree, I I talk a little bit about her autobiography, but I was very intentional about focusing my argument on her essays. And I did so because um, a lot of Black feminists, um, most of their theoretical work is in essays, um, sort of like how philosophers used to write treatises. And I I worry about how sometimes because Zora Neale Hurston was also a novelist that um, we tend to focus on drawing the philosophy out of her novels um, to the exclusion of her essays. So I wanted to focus on her essays and those interludes um, in the book or those scenes are my essays um, kind of contributing to this tradition of writing um, theoretical work in essays or essay form.
2: Yeah, that they were really enjoyable to read. They were really nice. Um, they created a really nice flow to the book, where we you sort of come out of a chapter, and then you have, as you're saying, an interlude or the scene, um, and then and then you return to the argument. There's a really nice rhythm to it. Um,
0: I'm really glad to hear that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I love thinking of
2: them as as essays within the book too. Um, that's rich. Yeah. Um, so so, in, so let's get into the argument. Your, your reading of Hurston's performance of Southern Black Joy is a response to this well-entrenched dialectic of, of Black enchantment and Black tragedy is one way that you, you talk about it. Um, and so would you help us understand the nature of that dialectic and sort of what the, the underlying logic of it is?
0: So one way to, to go about it is to um, kind of know about Hurston's own life, is that a lot of what she wrote, especially in essays, just seemed to strike the wrong notes in the public sphere, um, especially in progressive um, anti-racist circles. Um, and she caused so much discord in her, her essays that um in some ways, she was kind of outcasted during her lifetime. Um, I was trying to make sense of that. What exactly was she doing? Um, because it seemed like in some ways, um, a lot of her positions on things like racism and feminism aligns with the more progressive um, way of thinking about these issues. So how do we make sense of, of those moments when she seems to be contradicting that? Um, I did not want to read her as just um, a woman who got confused or who was just trying to um, be provocative just for just for its own sake. Um, and reading her essays led me to to really see that there were these ways of reading Black life that were pretty predominant in the um, period of enslavement and the. Um, antebellum abolitionist period. Um, These weren't the only ways, but they were pretty predominant. So one way was to read black life in the South as um, perfectly normal and okay. Um, Black people are happy being slaves. And um, look, we're, we're so much more productive when we're under white control, under white rule. That was the argument that was set forth by slave owners um, during this period where um, the issue of slavery was coming to a head in the public sphere. Um, The other way of reading Black life in the South was to emphasize um, how horrible slavery was and how much we did not enjoy it and how much we wanted to be free. Um, And that, sort of argument was put forward by, um, abolitionists during the time. And, um, what's interesting to me is that when you have these two different ways of looking at Black life in the South as predominant, um, some things drop out or you can't really say. Um, so because, um, These ways of Black life were shaped by um, an argument in the public sphere about um, whether slavery was moral or not. There were certain questions or or aspects of Black life um, that, should you mention them, would... Put you on the wrong side politically. So hmm. um, for people who really um, didn't agree th- with the idea that slavery um, was n- okay, <laughs> um, for those people, they really did not want to say anything about um, whether Black people had moments of being happy um, while they were sl- enslaved, um, if they had moments where their their lives weren't overshadowed by um, terrible white slave masters. Um, and... I'm very sympathetic to that. You can understand why you just don't want to have anyone saying those sorts of things at that Mm -hmm. moment. If you're on the side of the abolitionist saying we want to completely abolish slavery, Um, those methods or ways of talking about black life in the South continued um, even after the abolition of slavery. Um, So you have someone like Zora Neale Hurston, um, during the Reconstruction period, just a generation or two out from um, and slave from slavery, um, saying, how am I supposed to talk about Black life in its fullness if um, the only lines that are dictated to me that I can take are, um, we enjoyed slavery and we were happy, or um, <laughs> slavery was awful and nothing there's nothing good that you can see in black life, um, because of it.
2: Yeah. And part of, part of Hurston's performance of a politics of joy, um, you argue is indifference to racism and you read that indifference as a, as a mode of refusal. I I want, will you talk about what it would, what it means to read that indifference as a mode of, of refusal?
0: Yeah. So, um, one of the ways to, to kind of get at it is to see that both sides of, of this way of, of shaping um, the discourse on, on Black life in the South um, does have an inner um, logic that they share. Both sides are preoccupied with um, Black-white relationships, and both sides um, seem to... Um, share this sense that black life will go awry without white intervention. So um, you have on the side of the the slave owners, the sense that black life um, in order to be at its most productive must have white control, but you also have white abolitionists who are very invested um, in um, intervening in what's happening in the South um, as if um, black people could not get free without their intervention. And Hurston took exception um, to this idea that um, all of black life is directed towards white people or preoccupied with white people or concerned um, Mm -hmm. with white people. So that's what I mean by um, how often she chose indifference instead. Um, She tried to to live as though um, white people (laughs) were not our major concern um, and were not the, the center of our lives um, and sometimes that comes out as a refusal and this is part of why she struck such um, notes of discord um, in the public sphere is um, I think today um, and this is something that comes out of um, the abolitionist uh, discourse that is still with us today. Um, if you want to be seen as progressive, um, there are some norms with how you talk about Black life in the public sphere, and and one of those norms is that um, it's always in terms of of tragedy um, of of how devastating our uh, racism makes our lives. Um, and it's because uh, you don't want to be mistaken for um, someone who is conservative, who would say um, black people are fine and there's no racism, racism whatsoever. Um, I think that's a false dichotomy. And I think Hurston saw that. Um, and she chose instead to um, reject this abolitionist norm of, only talking about the tragedy of black life or uh, during her time only talking about um, the crisis of of lynching Um, and instead uh, choosing to focus on areas of black joy or areas where black people were in conversation with each other and not so concerned about um, what white people are doing.
2: Yeah, and part of the part of how you play this out is through um your reading of Hurston's disagreements with Du Bois and um the way he reads the way Du Bois reads spirituals and and labels them sorrow songs. And you read Hurston's rejection of that label as a rejection of um of new abolitionist framings and particularly of black people as objects of pity, thats that you've got that chapter title. Um, and so I, I would love you to flesh this out about how does this disagreement allow us to see um, to see Hurston as responding to Du Bois, right? And about the nature of things like, some of the things you talk about are like the nature of racial progress, the role of root work, um, and the role of cultural assimilation in political struggles.
0: Mm-hmm. 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 So before before I begin to answer this question, I just want to, like, preface it with um, this was one of the hardest chapters for, for me to write um, because I know that everyone loves Du Bois. And, you know, I, I do respect and admire him and. Um, but I do think that it's his model of politics that kind of went out um, in these in these battles and shapes African-American um, philosophy or the canon of African-American philosophy. So it was important um, to put Hurston and Du Bois in conversation. Um, that being said, um, my focus was on the souls of black folk. Um, so for those Du Bois scholars who are out there listening, Um, This is not (laughs) about later Du Bois. This is primarily about the souls of black folk because that's the, the only um, book that I'm aware of Hurston reading by Du Bois. Um, And there's, you know, textual evidence of Hurston, um, not only knowing Du Bois, exchanging letters with him, but also um, writing about him in her own essays Um, and She's focused on Du Bois because um, the way that he positions himself is as um, kind of an inheritor of the tradition of abolitionism that Frederick Douglass um, was such a huge developer of. Um, So I decided with this chapter to focus on the um, essay that Hurston wrote, called Spirituals and Neo-Spirituals, where some of her most um, direct criticisms of of Du Bois are are present. Um, I see the spirituals as an entryway into different modes of politics that Hurston and and Du Bois go after. So um, one way to to think about the the difference between them um, is that The model of politics that Du Bois takes up through his analysis of the spirituals is one of the politics of recognition. Um, You can see this in some of the ways that he um, talks about the main message that the spirituals um, are giving. It's a message of um, justice in the liberal sense. And by liberal, I mean philosophical liberal sense of um, one day being judged by um, our character and not our skins. Um, He also takes up an interpretation of the spirituals that is first put forth by Frederick Douglass um, to where the spirituals become um, a weapon of abolitionism and the way that you're supposed to understand spirituals, according to Douglas and then Du Bois, is that they're a testament to the evils of slavery. Um, so they're evidence of the abolitionist cause. Hurston thinks this is just false. Um, she thinks that you know there are places where sure, um, the spirituals do testify to misery and woe of the slaves. Um, But by and large, Erston thinks that the spirituals have nothing to do with slavery, Um, that you can find um, songs um, that count as spirituals that are about a whole bunch of topics, judgment, death, love. Um, It's not just about um, this altercation with white slave owners for her. Um, so I called kind of her model of politics, a politics of refusal because she refuses that abolitionist line that um, you can reduce black life to our struggle against white people.
2: Yeah. One of the things that struck me about in that chapter, I think, yeah, it was there that, um, just this point i from hurston that you underline which is that spirituals are so much a part of everyday life this song making is so much a part of everyday life that they can be forgotten right that they're like all the time being made all the time being forgotten and there was something um so important i think about um the level of hurston's concern with like everyday life and um and the relationships um the like relationships black people have with themselves and with each other, and the everydayness of that—that that she is trying to, um, like to give life to, in in many ways in her work. Um, and so I just loved your that that point about that. There's so so much part of everyday life that we forget them, right? That we make them and then we mm-hmm. forget them. Um,
0: mm-hmm. She also, um, I'm glad you brought that up because she also um, contests that. Um, the spirituals were just something confined to the period of, of enslavement. Yeah. Um, so she's very much so wants to say, look, it's, slavery is, is has been abolished and we're still producing the spirituals, which is another um, point to how um, it wasn't just about um, slavery, the spirituals message, um, that the, the message of the spirituals um, has a lot to do um, with the um, the idea of the sacred in black life, um, and how the sacred can be found in the mundane, everyday aspects of life.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, and and part of what you give us an account of, and it's it looks like this was maybe a lifelong tendency that then becomes um, then becomes a an occupation of her intellectual life is, is how much um, Hurston seemed to revel in elements of black culture. And um, I think about the scene in the, in the jazz club that you describe and um, that she describes and that she, she, part of how she develops that reveling into a methodology is through her relationship with an interviewee. Casola. Um, is that?
0: Kasola. Mm-hmm. Casala. Okay. Kasala. Kasala? Yeah.
2: okay. Yeah. Um, and, and you really help us think about that relationship um, with her interviewee through through another ethnographer through Audra Simpson's work, um, and this is I, this really seems to animate what you mean by refusal, right? Is that um, is what Audra Simpson is up to, um, and and so I mean, I, will, you, will you tell us more, I guess, about. Um, how, how refusal helps us understand this relationship and how this relationship helps develop, um, Hurston's own approach to things like misrecognition, refusal, indifference. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. I mean, this was, uh, my favorite chapter. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, partly because, um, I have been following Audra Simpson for, a while now. And um, I absolutely love her work. Um, And I found in in her work, um, conceptual tools like the the way that she talks about refusal um, as a way of understanding how Hurston's politics really did not follow a politics of recognition. If anything, Mm -hmm. it was, um, I want them to not recognize me so that I can be left alone. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. And that really resonated with me. Um, There are some ways that Hurston also suggests um, a comparison of um, Black life and and Native American life and politics that arise out of um, those different sorts of oppressions. Um, in her letters and, and, and some of her essays, um, one of her most famous essays, um, court order can't make racist mix where she denounces, uh, Brown versus board. I mean, that essay got her in a lot of trouble. Mm -hmm. Um, but her defense of her position was to say that, um, she takes quote, the Indian position, um, over the line that many um, Black people were expected to take, um, which was, you know, gratitude to the Supreme Court for making um, white people integrate with us. Um, she she did not like the sense of um, pity that she felt um, girded the Supreme Court decision. Um, so... <laughs> So you can see how she got into a lot of trouble with that essay. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, her referring to the, the Indian position um, also gave me a clue as to, okay, so maybe she's getting something um, out of Native American politics um, that she couldn't get out of um, African, or she felt that she couldn't get out of African American politics during that time. Um So one of the things that, again, I get out of of Audra Simpson is this really rich um, conceptual analysis of practices of refusal. Um, And I try to figure out how that might Um, work or or map out in Black life, um, because there are some really stark differences between um, African-American life and Native American life, um, especially when you you think about the history of of slavery um, and how um, that issue played out differently um, across various groups. So it's not um, a straight... Um, comparison. There are are lots of ways in which it it doesn't map on. Um, But one of the ways that it seems to map on for Hurston is the sense that um, she felt that um, Native Americans did not push um, the U.S. to um, integrate. She felt that they had a tradition of self-respect that meant that um, they did not um, see themselves as pitiful, and they would not um, let the U.S. see them in that way. Um, and that's where Hurston kind of wants to go, um, because of the, the um, tradition of abolition abolitionism that informs black writing. Um, she has a lot of work to do to get away from um, viewing from this norm um, where we are viewed as objects of pity if we want to um, gain anything um, politically. So one way to to think about, how does she contort herself to get out of this um, is to think about um, how might the goals of black writing shift if it's no longer about truth and revelation and more about um, misrecognition. Um, It means that she can contradict herself. It means that she can play um, with the reader um, and tell them lies (laughs) if she Mm -hmm. wants to. Um, It means that there is a part of her that she's not willing to share with the audience, um, primarily because of her self-respect in the sense that she does not want to become um, an object of pity in her reader's eyes. She does not want to contribute to um, this kind of um, enjoyment that um, abolitionists and the descendants of abolitionists might have in um, consuming Black trauma, Black suffering, Black pain. Um, so it means things like her autobiography, Dust Tracks on a Road, um, might actually not tell us very much about her. Mm-hmm. Um, and she might tell us some lies um, in that autobiography. And she might um, say things that completely fly in the face of what we would expect of a Black writer during her time.
2: Yeah, it it, it strikes me how... Um... How difficult it is to read someone who's um, who's willing to use misrecognition um, and who's who's engaged in refusal.
0: Mm. Yeah, and I mean that's one of the things that I find most rewarding about reading Hurston.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, you know, there is a tendency sometimes to. Um, especially when it comes to uh, African-American writers um, to, to feel that we can just read um, these thinkers in, in philosophy that we can just read these thinkers straightforwardly um, without consideration of the historical context. Um, And I think Hurston is one of those thinkers that um, like so many, many others in the African-American kind of canon, um, you cannot do that with, <laughs> um, you can't just pick up a Hurston essay and teach it straightforwardly. Um, you have to be aware of all of these different um, debates that inform African-American politics and philosophy to be able to, to teach her responsibly. Um, so she kind of demands that you, that you study her um, and that when she says something, um, do not just take it at face value. Mm.
2: Yeah. It's one of the ways I saw you study her in the book was to return to her words, like to a passage in, in different ways and that the same Mm. passage would come up in a new way. And it was really, um, always so interesting to see the way that that passage would take on this new, um, this new meaning in your in mm. your next reading of it and that that accumulates through the book.
0: Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, to some degree I was trying to follow even her own um, cons- conceptualization of black aesthetics. Um, mm. So this is something that comes out of um, her essay, Characteristics of Negro Expression. Um, And it's something that's also taken up in Cheryl Wall's newest book, um, The Will to Adorn. Um, And it's this, uh, sorry, that is the concept, the will to adorn, the sense that um, there are these different registers of um, Black art, um, whether it be writing, um, sculpture, dancing, um, there is this this tendency for um, adornment, um, many many layers, um, and this it creates this rich fullness of expression, mm-hmm. um, and it it isn't about <laughs> um, resistance, or again, it isn't about um, kind of a, a dress to to white people. It's very self-referential. And that's one of the things that I was trying to do with Hurston's own words, because I think that she um, not only noticed that as an anthropologist, um, but also practiced that in her own writing. So yeah, a lot of her passages um, have these um, rich layers of meaning that you can, can tease apart in a lot of different ways.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
2: Yeah, 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 and a certain playfulness, I think, and what's happening. Yeah, and that, and it was striking to me just the way you also lay out a sort of black feminist tradition of reading Hurston, um, Mm -hmm. that like that that allows those readings, right? That sort of made her available um, over time because because black feminists did the work to to keep (laughs) reading her, right, and to keep to to like see to see her playing and to see her yeah, to see what she was up to. Um,
0: it's,
2: yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, Alice Walker, especially, um, she's one of the people that um, is often mentioned in you know, the recovery of, of Zora Neale Hurston. Um, but it was also a lot of um, Black feminist teachers, honestly, who, um, there was one point when Hurston's novel, uh their Eyes Are Watching God was, was out of print. Wow. Um, and it took um, a lot of school teachers who would just make copies of yeah. the one copy that they had of that book um, that kept us reading Hurston. I mean, of course, now um, you can find Their Eyes Are Watching God anywhere. Um, but I, I don't want us to forget um, the <laughs> The number of teachers who who made sure that their black students still had access to Hurston.
2: Yeah yeah, and I love I love the way you give us a glimpse into the work that of generations, right um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that made, that made this possible and then and then the way that you connect her to Beyonce, right? like you kind of give us <laughs> you kind of bridge the, the gap, the time gap there. Um, yeah, who I, I, we have not done full. Um, justice to the importance of Beyonce <laughs> to your to your work here. Um,
0: yeah. yeah,
2: do you want to do you want to say anything more about that before we we turn to your conclusion?
0: I mean, Beyonce surprised me too. I I wasn't really a Beyonce fan, um, but then I listened to and and watched the visual album Lemonade. And I was like, oh, she's kind of serious. Um, and I, I realized a lot of the ways that people kind of talk about Beyonce um, is a little bit dismissive. Mm-hmm. And it, stri- it struck me as dismissive in a similar way that people are dismissive of Hurston's racial politics. And so people, people are willing to accept that Hurston um, contributed a lot to feminist politics. Um, but because of some of her her stances. Um, on race that were out of step, Um, like her denouncement of Brown versus board meant that people were kind of like, she wasn't really so serious about race though, (laughs) Um, Mm. or she profoundly misunderstood some, some things about race. Um, I find a similar thing going on with the way that people um, kind of dismiss um, Beyonce's intellect. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And Lemonade was such an important resource for me because at least with that album, visual album, she is really trying to develop a black Southern aesthetic. Um, and the sort of politics that you get out of, um, of Lemonade, um, some of the racial politics, like her, her nods to black lives matter is firmly rooted in the black South. Um, so it was kind of the perfect, um, Example for me of how do you develop um, an appreciation of Southern Black joy today? <laughs> um, how do you do that? What does that look like um, in the public sphere? Um, and how do people respond to it in the public sphere? Yeah.
2: Yeah. And it, so you've had a little time to think about lemonade. Your conclusion does this thing that I always find really breathtaking, which is, um, you, you read events unfolding, you read the pandemic unfolding through the analysis you've developed in the book. And I, I'll just say like, when I events unfolding, I'm usually sort of frozen in front of them. And then five (laughs) years later, I have like a thought about how I might have a thought about that. Um, so it really, it really does. It's, it's an amazing intervention, I think on your conclusion and, and the way you're able to do it so quickly, like, in the midst of of the pandemic unfolding, um, mm-hmm. so would you talk a little bit just about how how your this work on the politics of Black joy did allow you to process the pandemic as it, as it is unfolding, but especially as you were mm-hmm. writing, it was pretty early, right in the in the days of the yeah. pandemic.
0: Yeah, it was, it was really early. Yeah. Um, I, I think it was like the, the second wave or something, and now we're on our fourth wave. So, yes. uh-huh. um, yeah, it was really early. Um, the resource that I got out of the book, you know, and writing the book was ways of analyzing um, how Black Southern life gets represented in the public sphere. So, I thought a good test case would be. Um, how is Black Southern life being represented during a national crisis? Um, I mean, international crisis, but in particular in the US, how is it being represented? Um, And I found that in news reports, there was this sense that um, the pandemic was going to be worse in the South, and that that was just inevitable. Mm -hmm. And the thing that really caught my interest was, um, reports from the New York Times about how, um, Mardi Gras is to blame for the spike in New Orleans. Um, and I just, you know, I had to sit with that for a bit to figure out what it was that bothered me about that. Um, and one of the things that that came out of me thinking about it was um, the sense that they blamed um, how bad the pandemic was in um, New Orleans. It was very bad in New Orleans at the right at the beginning, mm-hmm. um, because of a, a tradition, a cultural tradition um, that really emphasizes Black joy. I mean, Mardi Gras is part of an, an international. Um, kind of festival, um, Carnival. And um, it's one of the the few times uh, in a year where you really get to see um, Black joy on display um, in New Orleans and um, in the Gulf Coast. Um, I found it interesting that the reports blamed it on Mardi Gras um, and not on the number of Northern tourists that flooded the streets of New Orleans, um, especially those from New York during Mardi Gras, who were um, there to kind of consume the um, exotic, (laughs) um, or to their mind, exotic, um, fun um, day of revelry that is Mardi Gras in our cultural imagination. Um, especially since we know that the the strain, well, now we know the strain that, um, of, of COVID that um, caused this huge spike in New Orleans was from New York. Um, so mm-hmm. you can kind of trace that it was people from New York who um, were bringing coronavirus to New Orleans and causing this big spike. Um, but we don't have space in our um Kind of public discourse to talk about um, other reasons for why um, things have have gotten kind of bad um, in the South with coronavirus. It seems like the the ready made language to pick up is this sense that well it was always going to be bad, um, and it struck me um, how often at the very beginning people wanted to compare what was happening, um, in new Orleans to hurricane Katrina. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's part of why I quoted my mom in that, that chapter because, or the conclusion, because her first response to that was this, this is nothing like hurricane Katrina. Um, but I argued in that, that, the conclusion that people were reaching for Hurricane Katrina um, to, to talk about it, because there is this overwhelming norm um, to talk about Black life in terms of, of sorrow and tragedy. So, of course, it was inevitable um, that it was going to be horrific, um, and that we have to to say it's like Hurricane Katrina if we want um, the the federal um, response. To be one of of help um, and not just ignoring us. It seems like in order to to get the sort of um, resources that we that we need to make this better, we have to appeal um, to how much we're suffering.
2: Yeah, and you do this thing where you it, it feel it felt like it felt anthropological in the in like a in the way that Hurston and Simpson do this. Mm-hmm. Um, where you mm. attend to how black joy, practices of black joy, people adapt them to mm-hmm. the situation, right? People immediately begin, upon getting the information they need, begin to adapt things like like their Mardi Gras celebrations mm-hmm. to the mm-hmm. situation. And you give this mm-hmm. sort of um you give us this account of these of these adaptations being made in real time.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, one of the one of the things that I kind of listened to on repeat um, <laughs> during the early days of the pandemic was this um, song by song by Shamar Allen that I that I mentioned in the um, conclusion um, where he sings about you know bringing a, a second line to your living room and um, it was just so beautiful and captured this sense of, okay, um, this tradition of second lining is really important to us. Um, it, it lifts our spirits, but clearly we can't just crowd in the street right now um, given this horrible spike. Um, so what do we do? Um, in that video, he shows you know lots of people um, doing the second line dances in their living room. Um, And he also, in a very cheeky way, is um, reminding people about, you know, the the tips that the CDC gives, like wear your mask and and all those sorts of things. Um, So you can kind of see with that that um, we're not against um, adapting to the situation. Um, And it's not... Our practices of joy that is making um, coronavirus um, as bad as it is in in certain parts of the of the south. And I, it was also heartening um, last year to see that. Um, sorry, this year to the years just blend together mm, with the pandemic. Mm-hmm. But this year, um, instead of parades for Mardi Gras, a lot of people decorated their houses as um, floats, (laughs) and you could just kind of drive around and see the different houses. Um, We still want to have our celebration, um, but it's clear that we can't, as we did before, we have to adapt.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, so what are you working on now?
0: So, now what I'm doing is um, developing more of the stuff with root work. So, I got connected with these two scholars, um, Kenitra Brooks and Camila Martin, who are developing this thing that they call conjure feminism, Mm. um, where they're trying to tease out um, the philosophical aspects of of root work and conjure. They um, recently I think it's out. It's either out or about to come out. Um, they edited this special issue of Hypatia that's dedicated to, to conjure feminism. Um, so a lot of what I'm doing is in line with that sort of work. Um, I'm also early days, um, working on, um, a project that deals with, um, refusal and, um, root work. Um, and conjure women. And I'm looking at figures like Marie Laveau, um, who were alive during multiple um, endemics, like yellow fever um, and cholera, um, and trying to figure out um, what resources these conjure women um, had that helped them get through pandemics. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Of course, it feels like everybody's thinking about pandemics right now, but I think rightfully so. This is the first time yeah. that um, it feels to me, at least in my lifetime, that society just, just shut down and stopped. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm really kind of interested in how did so many um, Black women, Black conjure women um, make it through that?
2: Oh, I'm really looking forward to that project. yeah yeah well Lindsay Stewart thank you again so much
0: yeah thanks for having me